you can open up a newspaper. Go go look at the obituary page. 24 entries on there. You can actually read all 24 entries and no one will have died. They get lost. They go home to Jesus. They pass, but they never, ever, ever die. Even professionals. Nurses see death every day. Undertakers see death every day. Cemetery workers see death every day. Even these people who make their living can't say the D word. So to the extent that people can say the D word and have, have a frank conversation about this, I can tell you as somebody who used to be afraid of even walking into a funeral home way back when, that this fear, the great majority of it, is a story that we tell ourselves and that we tell the people around us and that they tell back to us. We are creating this fear and neurosis in our own heads. If you are willing to give it five minutes to have a candid conversation about it, you will feel so much less fear. I know it because it's happened to me and I've been able to bring that to hundreds of other people. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet like-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. 
If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, I'm excited to welcome Josh Slocum, host of Disaffected Podcast. Many of you are probably already familiar with Josh and Disaffected, um, but I'll have him give sort of a brief overview of what the podcast is for those who are new. Um, I was recently on Disaffected in a two-part series that's available through audio only. Disaffected is on uh, all platforms, including YouTube, but our two-part series where we talked about affirmation generation and the gender crisis is on audio only. So make sure you subscribe to Disaffected on all platforms to go ahead and hear that. Josh, it's great to have an opportunity to talk to you again. Um, Welcome. Thanks, Stephanie. I had a really good time talking to you when our roles were switched. So this will be fun too. Thank you. So I think many people are probably familiar with your work, but for those who haven't heard Disaffected about, can you give a brief description of what it's about? Yeah, it's um, it's a weekly talk show. And it has a thesis, and the thesis is um, that society, uh, culture, politics, commerce, business, is being taken over by what I call cluster B dynamics, abuse dynamics, the kinds of things that people are familiar with hearing about in terms of the home, domestic abuse and child abuse. I see the very same psychological dynamics in home and domestic abuse metastasizing out and starting to control our mainstream mores, our values and how we relate to each other. It's good, a deep investigative, not, not so much investigative. What's the work I'm looking for? You have a very penetrating intellect and you do not mince your words. <laughs> so no. for people who find that grounding or refreshing, who need that real raw, honest voice of truth and reason, even when it, when it hurts. I think your podcast can be good medicine for them. And there's there's some overlap in what you, what you talk about and what I talk about. Yeah. I think early in our introduction to each other, you, uh, you knew that I had an episode with Andrew Hartz, a psychologist called Counseling in a Cluster B Culture. Yes. And in my conversations with therapists on this show, we often talk about sort of the takeover of our field and how it's how it has its place in the culture wars and how the culture wars are driven by this sort of cluster B takeover. So, some, you know, I've been thinking uh, this morning about what we were going to talk about today. And it occurred to me that there's a theme I get from you, which is the shadow. It seems like that's something that you, part of your, your mission, your reason for existence here on this earth seems to be deeply motivated by doing shadow work. Um, And I'm sure you have an an inclination of of what I mean when I say that, but I'm thinking that, you know, your podcast explores these dark dynamics that a lot of people don't want to look at. Um, And you're kind of known for that. You're kind of known for confronting things head on and exposing things that people would rather not know about. Um, 
as well and thinking about your background. So you've shared on your podcast that part of how you got into this line of thinking is dealing with your own history of uh, extreme narcissistic abuse from growing up with, with your personality disordered mother. And you've talked about how that shapes you. Another thing that you've alluded to that's very much in keeping with this theme of the shadow is that you um, spent a good portion of your career in the funeral industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're chuckling. Did you know I was going to go there? <laughs> no, but it just, it's, you know, it just, I, you know, you don't see yourself from the outside sometimes. And when someone else does and you look at it and you say, oh boy, that's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting because um, I, I actually think some of the most interesting podcast hosts are like this, and and I I, I relate to that as well. I, I recently spoke with Megan Murphy. Um, mm -hmm. That episode has yet to come out, but it actually by the time our audience hears this episode, you probably will be able to hear my episode with Megan Murphy. And I I noticed this with her too that um, that like here's a person having fascinating conversations. And you get little glimpses of their life and their interests kind of through that. You're, you can't quite piece together, together a narrative because you're not advertising, hi, I'm Josh Slocum or I'm Megan Murphy or I'm Stephanie Wynn and here is my entire backstory and here's a <laughs> box that you can put me in, right? right? You're just, you're more interested in having intellectually stimulating conversations. But through those conversations, these little bits and pieces come out that you're like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder about the, I wonder about this person's story. And so- now, I'm not sure, maybe you have had episodes where you've gone into this in greater depth, because I, I certainly haven't listened to every episode of your podcast, but I know I've I've listened to a few where you just kind of allude to it. You're like, well, in my 20 years in the funeral industry, and I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> so no, okay. yeah, yeah, no, we can talk about that. Um, I was actually a consumer advocate. I was not a funeral director. I did not sell funerals. I worked for an organization. I was the director of a nonprofit called Funeral Consumers Alliance. Uh, think of it like it was Consumer Reports magazine, but only for the death, dying, burial purchase. Right? So our goal was educational, to let people know what their legal rights were when it came to shopping for funerals, because most of what Americans think they know about what they, quote, have to do and are not allowed to do, as I'm doing the bunny ear quotes, most of what we think we know about death and funerals is not true. I call it mortuary mythology. And these untrue beliefs and the fact that it is socially taboo to talk candidly about death and the dollars and cents of the death transaction, this leads us to a situation where a lot of people end up having done no forethought no planning. They A loved one dies. All of a sudden, they've got a body they have to take care of. They have no earthly idea what they're purchasing, how much it should cost versus how much it appears that it's going to cost. And we end up feeling, a lot of us Americans and Canadians, that we overspent or that we were taken advantage of in a moment of grief. And most of that so that the job of Funeral Consumers Alliance was to both educate the public about what their rights were so that you could plan a funeral that met your emotional and your financial needs without getting into a financial crisis. But we also acted as a consumer lobbyist, uh, speaking for the voice of bereaved people in terms of regulations in the funeral industry. So the big project that I worked on before I was canceled out of my job 
was um, changing rules at the Federal Trade Commission that would require funeral homes, for example, to post their complete prices on their websites so that people could actually see what the real cost was. So it was sort of activities like that. And I spent 20 years there, which was too long. And over 20 years, I believe that I got into the work. I was a newspaper journalist before that. Cops and crime. So, of course, it was still in the, in the area of death and tragedy. But I, I think now that when I got into the work with Funeral Consumers Alliance, I was playing the savior role in the, the drama triangle. I wanted to save people from the avaricious undertakers, you know, who were going to bankrupt them. And I did a lot of handholding. I did a lot of very personal one-on-one counseling and consulting with consumers who would call, you know, to 10, 12 hour days. I gave people my home phone number. I took calls on weekends and I, I had a really, I had a really passionate, good time for many years doing that. You know, it was very satisfying work. But look, but my, my mind changed during that time. And I began to see that one of the things that consumer advocates often neglect is consumer responsibility, not just protecting them from evildoers, but actually holding them responsible for carrying out important transactions thoughtfully. You have to set your own budget. You have to decide what's meaningful to you. You actually have to actively plan this. And so I began to take a different approach in the second half of my time there, focusing less on what was wrong in the funeral industry. And there's plenty that is wrong in the commercial practice of of funeral sales. But there's just as much responsibility for what's wrong on our side, the consumer side. We are not helpless victims. I treated people as if they were helpless victims when I came into this. That was not right. Um, so I, I, saw how, I saw my work change as a result of my personal views changing as well. Wow. Thank you for shining a light on all of that. And I was, I was following along. I didn't, I didn't expect you to get to that point where there was a turnaround from rights to responsibilities and this insight about your role in the drama triangle because I mean, if there's ever a time to feel like a helpless victim, it's during bereavement. Yes. Um, And people are, it is true, people are emotionally and intellectually compromised by bereavement. You can measure it. It's an objective reality. This is what happens to us. We are stressed. We make bad decisions. It's it. You can think of it. It's very analogous to the kinds of decisions that you make if you are sleep deprived, if you are intoxicated. Um, anything that deranges your emotional stability is going to make you make decisions that you probably wouldn't make when you're in a rational frame of mind. So I, I do believe, <clears throat> I do believe that because this is a unique transaction, when you're buying a funeral, that's the one purchase that nobody wants to buy. Nobody goes out and says, I want to buy a funeral. It's something you got to deal with. It's not a happy purchase like a car. And I know sometimes a car is not a happy purchase, but it's not like anything else. So I do believe that those on the commercial side, the funeral directors themselves, they have some special responsibilities to be transparent and honest to help overcome the handicapping that bereavement does to their customer's decision-making process. I still believe that's true. But I think that 
well, I began to get to the point at near the end of my career there where I started calling it hamster wheel work. I noticed that over my 20 years, and then I started to, to look back at consumer surveys that tested people's knowledge over, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. How much did people, Americans, know about what they could buy in a funeral, what a reasonable cost was, what the legal requirements were? Stephanie, there has been zero change. There's been zero change in the average, what the average American knows factually about death, dying, and funerals over the years. It has not moved one tick. <clears throat> and there are a lot of reasons for that, but it boils down to if I, I realize that an organization like Funeral Consumers Alliance cannot change the American attitude toward death and the death transaction, that requires a wholesale change of the American cultural mind. This is one small expression of a much larger cultural place. So that ain't never going to happen. And I got, I got tired of doing hamster wheel work. What you're saying makes total sense to me. We don't want to think about this in keeping with that shadow theme, right? And you yeah. use the word taboo. Um, it, it makes sense that it would feel like an uphill battle because your work doing that consumer advocacy can only really take place, I would imagine, in the moment of bereavement where someone is forced to seek out your help. Yes. Because it's it's a very rare individual in this culture that's going to proactively think, you know what I should learn more about? Funeral. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, sh I should imagine my, my parents' upcoming demise and think about what that's going to be like yeah. when they're no longer with me. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. So... You know, and so, some of that's just human nature. It's not going to change. But, um, you know, it's funny. I was going through some mementos the other day. I keep a couple of boxes, a couple of small boxes of mementos from starting at about age 12 onwards. You know, there's some college papers in there, some middle school art projects, you know, just a few things. And, and I came on a, <laughs> I think it was seventh grade. We had a class project for English class. Our project, we were going to make a booklet of stories called We Are Cortland. Cortland was my hometown, the town that I spent some years growing up in. Our job as students, we each had to go out and find a business owner in Cortland and interview him or her about the business they were in, a florist, a bicycle repair shop, the newspaper. Well, of course, I picked The Undertaker. Um, <laughs> Seventh grade, Josh. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes. Uh yeah, I, I'm not. I I can't lie. I've always been fascinated by the dark, um, the uh, the hidden, uh, the frightening. Um, always, ever since I was a little kid. So I I did my report on the local funeral home, and I and I found that I found that booklet from seventh grade the other day, and I looked at it, and you know, I I can still see the same snark <laughs> when I was eleven or twelve years old. I think I ended it by saying, um, it certainly is interesting work. I doubt I'd have the stomach for it. <laughs> um, but, you know. In conclusion, we are. we're all going to die. Yeah, <laughs> we're all going to die. Wow. <laughs> I just, 
the, you talk about, and, and you know what? Let me ask you. When you say shadow and shadow work, can you give me your definitions? I, I want to make sure I understand what you mean. You know, I think whatever my personal definition might have been has been eclipsed since I've been doing, um, since I've been representing affirmation generation. Because I found that I keep referencing back to this moment in the documentary where Lisa Marciano talks about the shadow. And, um, you know, she frames it with her her background as a Jungian analyst saying that yep. Jung said the shadow is anything that we don't, that our conscious mind doesn't really want to know about. And so I find myself sort of framing it that way with you. Like, yeah, we don't want to think about death. We don't want to think about our own mortality, the fragility of life, the mortality of the people we love. Um, and, and I'm wondering what you think about this as, as somebody who's been, who's gravitated towards the morose <laughs> from yeah. a young age. Um, I know you've, you've had your own struggles with your mental health mm -hmm. and you are a cultural critic. What do you think about, and not that I expect you to have like personal experience or a personal hot take on Buddhism or anything like that, but there are other cultures including, I believe, some Buddhist traditions where death plays a much more prominent role. In fact, I would argue that based on my limited knowledge that our our culture is one of the most death averse of all time because we've rarely had the option to shelter ourselves off from death as much as we do. Um, so how, how different cultures orient to death is probably beyond my scope, beyond the scope of this conversation, something you know more about than I would, I would presume. But what do you think about the idea of meditating on death, of bringing it more into the forefront of our daily consciousness and uh, grappling while we are alive, while we're even young and healthy with that ultimate reality. Well, I, I think about it. I think about it the way old gravestones think about it. If you go to, if you go to a very old cemetery New England, for example, very old in terms of America. I mean, I talked to my British friends. They're like, our churches are actually 1100 years old. And you're talking about these old 200 year houses, right? But go, go to, go to a revolutionary war or, it, or an early colonial uh, cemetery in New England and look at the headstones and you can see the difference in the way death is conceived by the symbolism and the way it's stylized. So back in the 1600s, a lot of these upright slate uh, classic sort of tombstone markers had skull and crossbones on them and the legend memento mori remember that you will die as time went on up into the late 1700s you started to see these candid symbols of death start to get softened and visually euphemized not euthanized euphemized like um, like they were made into visual euphemism. So instead of the skull and crossbones, it started to morph into an angelic cherub. You'd see the skull would have wings instead of crossbones. And then 50 years later, there's no more skull. It's a, it's a cherub's head, right? So you can sort of see the hallmarkification <laughs> of death or maybe a movement away from a very dour Puritan, um, you know, sort of thing. I, yeah, I do think, I do think that what I, I can't, 
I'm one of those people, my therapist is always getting me, is trying to get me to meditate. And I'm one of those people who's always resisting it. I'm like, I don't want to meditate and stuff. So I, I'm not doing my homework, so I can't give you anything in a Buddhist <laughs> sort of way. But um, the American fear of death is, in my view, pathological. It's not just an anxiety. It's a full-blown neurosis. We Americans act as if death is a life, uh, an optional lifestyle choice that just might not be right for our family. You know, <laughs> um, you can open up a newspaper, di- you know, digital, whatever. Go, go look at the obituary page, 24 entries on there. You can actually read all 24 entries and no one will have died. They get lost. They go home to Jesus. They pass but they never, ever, ever die, right? That tells us something. One of the, let me, let me give you two, let me give you two funny anecdotes from early in my time at Funeral Consumers Alliance. It illustrates this point of view. So one of the first calls I remember was, so Funeral Consumers Alliance is a nonprofit but, but it had sort of memberships, donors, right? Like, you know, you donate to the Audubon Society because you like their work and blah, blah, blah. So we had those two. Um, and I got a phone call and this woman says, I'm a nurse from Pinecrest Nursing Home or whatever it is. And we have one of your members and he's expired. And I said, well, would you like to renew his membership? And she said, after a beat of silence, sir, I said he expired. Fired. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I'm learning today that nurses are incapable of saying the word death. So I wasn't trying to be cute with her. I really thought she wanted to renew his membership, but I said he expired, right? We don't want to say the death word. Um, Then same month, this was, and this was 2022. No, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm getting old. 2002. (laughs) I got a a complaint, a consumer complaint from a woman whose husband had died. They were a Jewish couple. In the Jewish tradition, embalming is frowned on. They don't want embalming. They want to be buried in a pine box in the earth. The problem was that she and her husband had lived in Florida, but they had migrated back north to Wisconsin. But while they were living in Florida, they had bought two mausoleum spaces uh, for their eventual death. And they still wanted to use them, even though they were living in Wisconsin, they wanted to be buried there. So her husband died and she was going to ship his body down to be buried in that mausoleum. Her, the reason she was complaining was because the cemetery, the mausoleum director was telling her that in order to be buried there, that it was required that her husband be embalmed. And she didn't want to do this because it was contradictory to her Jewish faith. So she called me and I told her, no, there's no law that says you have to. If, if the cemetery told you that that was a legal requirement, that is not true. Um, and I offered to call the cemetery and see if I can negotiate. So I did. And here's the thing. This is a little bit gross, but um, I'm going to give it to you straight. One of the problems with mausoleums, especially in states like Florida that are hot and humid, 
it was never a good engineering idea to say, let us put human corpses behind one half inch of concrete above ground in a building that we go into. Let us do that and let us never expect that there will be any odor or any flies or anything like that. Never a good idea. All right. But especially in Florida, um, there are things called sealing caskets, caskets with a seal. They're ridiculous. I'm not getting into the whole thing, but they don't do what they're supposed to do. And this, this cemetery was telling her, well, he's got to be embalmed and he's got to be in a sealed casket. And both of those things are, are outside the Jewish faith. I couldn't understand this because the actual fact is <clears throat> if you put a body inside one of those sealed caskets above ground in a warm and humid climate, gases will build up and it can actually explode the front of the crypt off. I know that sounds like urban myth, but I assure you, having seen it with my own eyes, that it is not urban myth. It is real. Uh, so I was really puzzled by why this cemetery would require, would want this, let alone require it from somebody. So I call and I talk to the cemetery director, explain the situation. He says, well, our bylaws say that the body has to be embalmed in a sealed casket. And I said, well, sir, I understand that. But then we had the conversation about the exploding caskets and the, the problem of sealing caskets. And this is what he says to me. Um, well, you know, I, I, I've been the manager here for 20 years and we've never had that problem, despite the fact that from time to time we've had to move some of our patients. Okay, did you hear the last word in that, the word patience? <laughs> because I thought I'd misheard it, and I started laughing. <laughs> and I told him that he had a, a really good cryptside manner, um, but that I still couldn't understand why this was going on. So this is those are just illustrations of the degree to which even professionals, pe nurses see death every day, Undertakers see death every day. Cemetery workers see death every day. Even these people who make their living can't say the D word. So to the extent that people can say the D word and have, have a frank conversation about this, I can tell you as somebody who used to be afraid of even walking into a funeral home way back when, that this, this fear, the great majority of it, is a story that we tell ourselves and that we tell the people around us and that they tell back to us, we are creating this fear and neurosis in our own heads. If you are willing to give it five minutes to have a candid conversation about it, you will feel so much less fear. I know it because it's happened to me and I've been able to bring that to hundreds of other people. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients, but I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. 
The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Wow, Josh, uh, I am grossed out by your story. And I, know, I it's hope disgusting. our listeners are still with us. If you're still listening, thank you for bearing with us. This is gross and disturbing. And it's the it's the stuff that we don't want to look about or look at or think about. And yet it's our resistance, our resistance to that we know for one thing, you know better than anyone, sets people up to be exploited by their ignorance and unpreparedness for one. But what else does it get in the way of? Um, I just I just want to explore that with you. Now I do have to say, I mean, I'm I'm still processing this disgusting story you just told me. And I'm thinking if you're Jewish and according to your religious tradition, the body shall not be embalmed and shall be buried in a natural box. Why would you buy a space in a mausoleum? I think mausoleums are creepy and gross. I agree. Like what of course that could go wrong. It just doesn't add up. But I'm thinking maybe living in a death ignorant culture where people don't want to think about these things is part of what went into this couple's, I would say, poor decision making about their burial plans. Um, But what else? I mean, you talk about how centuries ago, Memento Mori and the Skull and Crossbones were on gravestones. And um, not to get too personal, but I've I've just, I, I, I think about death every now and then as I I use this term very loosely when I say a meditation um, because I also don't like to just sit still and focus on my breathing. Um, I, you know, if I meditate, it's, it's more active than that. But um, actually the place I go for most stillness would be um, float tank. Ah, float tank therapy, which has been really helpful for my uh, chronic illness or as a new friend of mine would insist, I say my poisoning with the spike protein bioweapon um, Uh uh, or my energetic state change. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, Float tanks have been really helpful. And I think actually there's a couple things I want to muse about from my experiences with float tanks. One is that I have sometimes recommended them to my patients and they found them really helpful. I don't just recommend to my patients anything that I personally enjoy willy-nilly. I recommend it if I really think this seems like a fit for them. And there's been a couple times that it seemed like someone might benefit from float tank therapy and it 
occurred to me to mention it. And that patient ended up coming back a couple of weeks later saying, that was so good. Um, one of the situations in which I've speculated that it might be helpful for people is actually in dealing with suicidal ideation. We're just talking about all kinds of stuff that's going to yep. not allow this video to be monetized on YouTube. <laughs> when I go through the monetization checklist, yes, we talked about death. <laughs> we talked about suicide. We talked about gross bodies. Um, so, but but bear with me here because, um, you know, as a therapist, again, suicidal ideation, one of those things we don't like to talk about and our ignorance of it is part of what sets us up to be exploited and to have threats of suicide used to manipulate us into doing unconscionable things. Whereas if the average person had a bit more competency, of course, I don't expect the average person to have the level of competency that I have as a therapist in talking about suicide, but we could all do with a little bit more competency. And sometimes people are forced into developing competency when a loved one is feeling suicidal. So um, I've had hundreds of conversations about suicide over the years and uh, longing for death or thinking you'd be better off if you weren't here, your loved ones would be better off without you. All these kind of things are not terribly uncommon parts of the human experience. For some people, they're a really common part of their their experience, and for others, it's you know maybe only a couple of times in their life that they go there. But it can mean many things: the longing for death, and sometimes it's I would to to frame it positively: it's a longing for stillness, for peace, for rest, um, freedom from that which a person is feeling shackled or confined by in their life, whatever sort of patterns of pain and suffering and ego attachments are prolonging that suffering in life. And so I actually think float tanks for people who are generally stable, not like in need of psychiatric hospitalization or anything, but people who are at a really low point yeah. And having a longing for death, hey, what happens if you just go and spend an hour and a half feeling weightless, warm and held in the darkness and just experience some silence and stillness and peace and let things settle? I could imagine that for some people that could be confrontational, frightening too, though. I, I can imagine times when the last thing I want to do is be in the silence of my mind because I know that the mirror will show itself to me, right? Have you ever done a float tank though, Josh? I haven't. This is such a common fear. And is it? Okay. Yeah, and it's, I had it too. And I've never talked to anyone who had that fear going into it and still had that fear afterwards. Okay, I believe you. I would definitely so, try it. Yeah. So here's something, um, I'm, I'm going to address some common fears. Now, I'm not like, you know, I wish that I could have an affiliate program with a, like a, a float center, but I don't know of any chains. <laughs> but uh, have those. <laughs> I know. Use my promo code to get twenty percent yeah. off your first float. Um, if there if there's anyone listening who has a nationwide <laughs> float tank therapy chain, please reach out to me. I would love to sell your products um, because I I can genuinely recommend them. But so people, people fear having a claustrophobic experience, being afraid of the dark, being afraid of the confrontation with their own mirror. Um, what a lot of people don't know about float tank therapy, a couple of points. One is that um, not all of them are claustrophobic. There are some float tanks designed so big that you could stand up in them. Um, not all of them are dark. 
Some have either a, like a dim light in the water that you can turn on and off at your leisure or even like twinkle lights above so that it looks like you're looking up at the stars. So you can completely control that. Um, and what a lot of people forget is, do you know what you're suspended in when you're floating? Um, if you're floating, um, my guess would be a very saline water. Yep. So it's actually magnesium sulfate. It's Epsom salts at oh. a higher concentration than you've ever taken in a bath. Okay. So when you think about the benefits of Epsom salts, magnesium, um, our bodies love magnesium, but there's only so much we can absorb through our di digestive tract. Magnesium okay. de deficiency is pretty common. And it's associated with anxiety, depression, um, restless leg syndrome, difficulty falling asleep, um, magnesium deficiency. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> For those who are just listening, you should see Josh's on. face right now. <laughs> <laughs> His face is lighting up. He's connecting dots. Um, so there's only so much magnesium you can take in digestive supplement form before it'll give you loose stools. Um, there's another... Thing that will demonetize us. We're talking about bowel stuff now. I, thank you for anyone who's still listening. <laughs> you must really love the shadow stuff. Um, but uh, you can't, but at a high enough concentration, you can absorb magnesium transdermally. Um, and it has tremendous benefits for your muscles, joints, and nervous system. So if you think about the calming, sedating, grounding, soothing effect of magnesium on your nervous system and uh, the, the relaxing effect on your muscles when you're in basically body temperature, magnesium salt-filled water and the way it sort of takes all the pressure off your muscles and joints, um, combine that and it's really calming for anxiety. And I think a lot of people don't think about that if they've never done a float tank before. They I just think- know. No, they think exactly what you think. They're, it's like, there again, there is that theme of the shadow. I don't want to look in the mirror. I don't want to know what's going to come up for me. I also wonder how many of us have had the formative experience of seeing that episodes of The Simpsons years ago where Homer does the float tank and it's a psychedelic experience. Did you see that? Oh, I never caught that one. Okay. But I'll bet a lot of people have formed an association from that. It was the first time I ever heard of sensory deprivation and Homer does sensory deprivation and then he's on some other plane of existence and it's a total psychedelic trip. Um, I mean, if your mind goes there that easily, life must be fun for you. But um, my mind doesn't immediately go to, yeah, you know, me neither. seventh dimensional fractal being state of mind despite floating in magnesium salts. Um You've just, you've sold me because uh, I, I know, I mean, I know from, you know, having learned this, but also from personal experience, how you feel after a long Epsom salt soak in a bath. Um, and, and in fact, you've, this reminds me, I need to do this more frequently. Um, I'm so, so glad to help with your self-care. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's such a simple thing, but I, yeah. I always forget about it, but yeah, um, so, yeah, I mean, I can imagine that that uh, that enlarged experience, you know, in a larger space and with a lot of time could be. It sounds nice. Yeah. Um, so I think I brought this up because I was thinking about how, well, a couple of points. One is how the longing for death is sometimes just a state of overexhaustion, overwhelm, sensory overload, mental overload. And sometimes it's a desperate attempt for some deep part of the psyche to say, I've had more than enough. I need to stop. 
And you can give yourself that by doing something like a float tank or by having the courage to walk away from whatever you're doing, set it down, and step outside and go for a walk or sit down in the middle of all the chaos and pick up an escape novel. Um, there, there are so many ways to make that decision, but it, it's a radical decision that has to come from within. So I've been grappling with this lately because of the challenges posed to me by my illness or my bioweapon poisoning, as <laughs> some people would like to think of it. Um, and I've, I've had moments of thinking, what if this is killing me slowly? What if the spike protein is is leading me to a, a slow and painful death? And um, again, something most people don't want to think about. And some people, well-meaning, if I try to talk to them about that, would try to talk me off the ledge of even thinking about that. But I'm not saying that as a suicidal gesture. Right. I'm saying it as a thought experiment and as an acceptance of one possibility that I can't deny yes. is a possibility. It could be a 0.01% chance. I don't know. But we're all at risk of death at any time. It could come in a number of forms. Um, will the spike protein be the thing that kills me? Maybe. Or will it kill me 10 or 20 years earlier than it might have otherwise? Maybe. There's no way of knowing that. So I started thinking about, just as a thought experiment when I was doing my last float tank, what if I am slowly dying? And how would I live if that were the case? And after my float tank, I spent the rest of the day reading a novel. <laughs> You have no idea how long it's been since I've read a novel. Okay. <laughs> I don't read novels. Okay. <laughs> but, um, so, and, and then I, I, I rested more deeply. This was just, yes, no, two days ago that I, I had a day, a day of deep rest. And then I was more productive yesterday than I've been in a long time. Physically, housework, because my body has been so weakened. Yeah. I, I I can't keep up with taking care of my home the way I used mm -hmm. to be able to. Um, and so I think the longing for death can be a longing for rest, a longing to let ourselves off the hook of responsibility. And the thing is, it's it's our resistance to death. It's our it's our um sort of stubborn egoic attitude that I can do what I put my mind to, which is like, it's not bad to have a willfulness and determination. It surely that those, I think some people could do with more of that and more courage, but, but ultimately, um, whether or not you believe in any particular version of God, I think an attitude of God willing can be helpful sometimes. And lately, that's the attitude that I've had to live my life with. Like, even our conversation today, Josh, I left it up to the last minute. I was like, if, if I have to cancel, to if yep. I have to cancel on Josh at the last minute, that's what's going to have to happen. And I have to let a lot of people down right now. So every day is kind of a letting go process because it's like, well, whatever my body is willing to do I today. I would have given you no stick. I would have been very understanding. I believe you. Thank you. But 
whatever my body and brain are willing to do today that doesn't feel like it's going to potentially make tomorrow worse. Yeah. And this is this is maybe I have a, a long life ahead of me still, but we all age and we all lose capacities. And yeah. it feels like there's so much resistance to acknowledging our limits. Death is is just one form of limitation in general. Yes. And I wonder if the things that you and I are cultural critics of have their roots somewhat in this resistance to acknowledging limitation, the limitations of your sexed body, for example, and the fact that that body will age and that everything that you thought you knew, that you thought you loved, you will outgrow, it'll fall away, relationships will end, belief systems will crumble. Yes. Habits that habits that will work are working for you at one stage in life will have consequences later on that you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Well, yeah, death is the ultimate limitation. And the time that we spend running from it, <clears throat> even the way we do death in terms of how we bury our dead, what we say about them, what monuments we erect to them, is is often an example of running away from death. So um, I, I won't, I won't do any more, uh, directly morbid, disgusting, don't worry, but let's go back to mausoleums for a second. So back in the 19th century, mausoleums were just something that rich people did. You know, they were family mausoleums. They would build what looked like a small neoclassical building, right? That would house six, seven, eight, however, members of the Howard family. 20th century comes along. Cemeteries changed in the 20th century. They they had always been considered um, a public good and a public resource. So it they they had always been treated as non-profit making entities. They were owned by churches or by towns. They were a public good, not a commodity. But in the 20th century, capitalism came into uh, death. It came in in the 19th, but um, cemeteries became commercial in many places. And you began to see, and you saw the linguistic shift. They were not cemeteries anymore. They were called memorial parks, right? The, the original model of this is the famous forest lawn in Southern California that has been the subject of movies and parodies and, and, and all these sorts of things. But the memorial park idea came along, and I call these places Levittown for the dead, tract housing for the dead. Uh, because it's all regimented. They're all these rows of identical flush to the ground markers. It, it looks like suburban tract housing in miniature. Um, and the mausoleums, they, they, they began to be called community mausoleums because everybody thought of these things as, oh, well, I'm not from a rich family. Rich families build mausoleums. So they started to build these mausoleums where you could buy just one space and you'd be housed next to other people from other families housed. Listen to me. I'm doing it myself. I said housed. <laughs> um, but they were marketed to people under false pretenses, but they were false pretenses that people want, people wanted to be fooled. So mausoleum was the new alternative to dank and creepy in-ground burial while you'll be buried clean and dry, right? Think about how nuts that is. Think that about how clean and dry. nuts that is. Your corpse is going to be clean and dry 
because it might not be nice down there in the earth. What? We're talking about dead people. And I can tell you, I don't know what percentage of the public it is, but I can tell you from 20 years of phone calls and emails and letters from the public that there's a substantial minority of people out there who, who are too concerned with the physical state of the corpse of their loved one, and they have wrapped up anxieties and neuroses. We almost personify the dead. Uh, you will catch people speaking as if that dead body had subjective sensation. So people will say, oh, I didn't want to put him in that coffin. It looked cramped like he wouldn't be comfortable. Or I, I can't stand the idea of my mother being cold in the ground. Right? I'm not trying to make fun of people, but this is nuts. It may be understandable, but it's nuts. And unfortunately... There's no pushback on this. So the industry will sell you all sorts of things on false promises. They'll sell you special kinds of boxes and caskets, and they'll claim that they're preservative. And none of this is true. The real problem is in us. You know, I, I, I wouldn't go so far. You know, I only knew these people, these consumers, through the phone and email relationships that I had with them, you know, one or two times. But it was very clear to me. That there, that there were people in severe psychological distress to the point of obsession, and I do mean obsession in a clinical sense, um, of, the, of the condition of, of the mortal remains of their loved one, and they were keeping themselves up at night. You know, did I bury her in the right way? Or, you know, this, this that, and the other thing. And it's all a way of avoiding the reality of, of the fact that your mother truly is dead. Your mother is no longer, right? We don't like to think about this with ourselves either. And I, ha I haven't reached some sort of state of contentment or peace. I don't like to contemplate my own death at all. It scares me. I haven't made a lot of progress on that. What, I can handle death going on around me. I can, I can make arrangements. Um, I can physically haul a corpse. I've done it before. I'm not afraid and squeamish of this stuff anymore. I know how to get through the practicalities and I can help people in practical ways with, with financial advice. But it doesn't mean that I'm at peace internally with the idea that someday my consciousness is going to wink out. I'm not at peace with that. So I don't blame any other person for not being completely at peace and contentment either. Well, and... When you say your consciousness is going to wink out, that is the part that's debatable, right? That's it is. the part I that's mean, the subject of religion and yes. philosophy. And I wonder what it's like for you, Josh, going through your life as this shadow worker, as someone who has confronted some of the most taboo subjects, apparently from a very early age, um, without a religion. I mean, you, you've said you're not a religious person, right? Yeah, I'm 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 not a believer. I don't That is not to say that I can't change my mind. I've changed my mind about things I never thought I would. So, you know, in 10 years I might be a religious person. That possibility is out there. Right now I simply don't it's not a matter of I don't want to, it's just that I simply don't see and believe any evidence in a conscious design or entity in the universe, but that doesn't mean I'm right. That's just where I am right now. 
nominally, we had some religious instruction growing up, you know, nominally. I'm, I was baptized in the Presbyterian Church. I'm familiar with, you know, lazy Protestant Christianity. You know, you certainly weren't a regimented Bible family or anything like that. But, I, you know, you talk about the shadow. I think, and, and I know there are other people like this, um, I grew because my home was chaotic, often physically violent, always, always emotionally and psychologically violent, always a mixture of lies and truth, always um, unpredictability, um, expectations that were written on the fly that no child could uh, could predict. The shadow was always there. There was never a time in my life. There was never a time growing up where I didn't, and I, w- I wouldn't have said it consciously, but I'm, I'm remembering my subjective experience as a kid. I always had a feeling that there was, you know, that device in spooky movies and stories where there's a person who can see a little bit beyond reality and see that there are other entities there that aren't visible to other people. Think of that as an, an analogy for what I'm saying. I'm not saying that I saw dead people or, or, or saw other things. I do think I was always aware that there was more going on in front of my eyes than what I was seeing visually. There was someone else inside my mother, right? My mother has borderline and narcissistic personality disorders. My stepfather was a severely violent um, attempted murderer and pedophile. You know, lots of violence in the house. I was always aware that there was, that with some people, there was something lurking in there that nobody talked about and everybody pretended wasn't real. It was almost like that movie from the 80s, They Live, where the guy gets the glasses and suddenly he can see that the people around him are not actually humans. They're all sort of robot skeletons underneath. I know that's exaggerated and and melodramatic. But I don't remember a time in my life where I ever did not have that perception. So this has been my experience my entire life, that this, the shadows inside of us and inside of these issues are always there. And I, I have often felt like the only person in the room who, who knew what, not who knew what was going on, but the only person who could see these things and the frustration of other people not seeing them or not being willing to say, hey, I see them along with you, Josh. I felt like I had to, like I was a little bit undercover, right? Like I couldn't let people know that I could see it, but I had to make sure and stay on top of it. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. 
It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Josh, I think I know what you mean when you talk about seeing things that no one else can see. I often use the rather convenient phrase, you know, the elephant in the room. And I feel like that's one of the reasons that I became a therapist because I always felt like, what, why is everyone looking at me like that when I mentioned the elephant? You guys can see that too, right? Yes. Yes. You know this. You understand it. Oh, I grew up with that feeling. Absolutely. (sighs) I'm sorry. I, I, I know that you, you have trauma from your past as well. And I, I, I don't ever wish it on anybody, but I, I have to tell you that it is, it is a relief to talk to somebody who knows that feeling. Yeah. Because you, you are, you know this, you must know this from personal experience. You feel, especially as a child or a young person, you sometimes question if you're crazy. Mm-hmm. But you also n- begin to notice that some other people want you to believe that you are crazy. Well... It's weird as a, as a highly sensitive person. Um, it's not always clear to me. It's still not. And I, I've been doing this a long time. It's still not always clear to me out of all the things that I can see, which everyone else can see and which they can't. Because if I mention that the walls in this room are green, which they are behind this tapestry, uh, everyone else knows that. If I mention that it's a Part, partly sunny, partly cloudy day. Everyone can tell that. Um, <laughs> and there are many there are many other things I could state that would be obvious. And then every now and then, this has been the case throughout my life, I will just, in a matter-of-fact way or in, in a perfectly appropriate context, I think, maybe sometimes inappropriate. I've learned to be more appropriate over the years. But I, I will mention something that seems to me as perceptible as the nature of the weather outside, something that I would think everyone would know. And and then I get that that look, like, how dare you say that? You're not supposed to say that. Yeah. Um, so when I was growing up, one of the one of those subjects was um the fact that my aunt was schizophrenic. Okay. And and that was definitely, I mean, that was bizarre because yes, we all know. I mean, we pick her up at the mental hospital or the halfway house where she's staying and, you know, she <laughs> talks about angels or whatever and um, and her hand is trembling and she's on 50 different medications and eats a gallon of ice cream a day. And yes, everyone knows that she's not well, but 
if I were to mention at the table anything about the fact that she's ill, then it's, you know. And that's one of those things that where do you draw the line between just normal conditioning a child not to be rude, not to say certain yeah. things? You know, there there is a there is a degree of teaching a child what's socially appropriate in different contexts. Yes. But I think there's a way to there's a way to teach children we don't say that in this context in this way and here's why that helps them develop better social skills. And I then there's a way of doing it that gaslights them. Yeah, I'm talking about the gaslighting. Um you know, and I think that I think that teaching children the the contexts where it is not appropriate to do this needs to be accompanied by and here is the context where it is appropriate here's where we can talk about this that has to be right there it can't you can't just well you can i don't think you should just tell them where they can't i think you need to follow that up immediately validating that what that they're not crazy that it is not weird that they noticed it um and that there is something to talk about but let's you and i do it privately or let's do it as mom and dad and you um of course in, in a childhood like mine that didn't occur mm. and kids will communicate things in the ways that they can you know i see this this big dramatic expression of emotion that's coming across in ways that are hard to be around when mm -hmm. it's, you know, the growling and the grimacing and the yelling yeah. and, you know, all of that, like very physical expression of anger. And the challenge is to, to name, I see that it's, it's, I see that you're upset. I see that you're angry. And the message needs to be clear. I think that nobody's telling you that, you don't get to have your feelings or that nothing happened to provoke them. Your take on what happened is probably subjective. <laughs> it's probably self-centered because that's, that's how we're, we all develop. Yep. Um, but, but it's, it's like, it's hard, I think for a lot of people to see someone else's big reaction and not just try to control the reaction. Yes. And when you try to control the reaction, it often unintentionally has the effect of making the person feel like they're not allowed to feel what they're feeling. That that and and then that feels like gaslighting because it's it's as if, you know, let's say it was a perceived injustice that sparked the anger. Um, and then the anger expresses itself in these big dramatic ways, yelling, grimacing, growling, raised voice, name calling. Um, if you just try to squash the behavior, which admittedly is behavior that needs to be shaped. Yes. Um, but you don't acknowledge that there was anything that might have happened to provoke it or that these feelings are actual visceral experiences happening in, let's say, the child's body then that has that kind of crazy making effect. It's not deliberate gaslighting 99% of the time. It's not malicious. Um, but the, the child needs some kind of other outlet. They need a scaffolding that meets them where they're at. That's like, clearly you have some feelings and something happened to push one of your buttons. Okay. It's just they need help shaping that and um, tempering that 
impulse and those those visceral sensations that are driving that reaction, tempering that with the needs of the people around them and learning some emotion regulation skills. And, and I connect this with what you're saying, that telling someone we don't talk about that in this way, in this context, and here's why, you were saying needs to be immediately followed by, and here's how and when and why we do talk about it. I think so. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, my experience is my experience and, and, you know, as we know, um, my experience was abusive and it was full of gaslighting. So it wasn't a case of this isn't malicious. Well, no, not, not every single thing my parents did was malicious. That is not true, but it was a personality disordered home. They were fundamentally abusive. They weren't just bad sometimes. They were not good parents. Uh, and as a child, this, I, I'm going to use the word and, and sort of give apologies, being invalidated as a child emotionally has long-term consequences. And I know that word is overused, and I know that to many people's ears, just the word itself sounds like a whine. It sounds like, a, I was invalidated. I know that connotation is there, and I do not mean to communicate it. I mean to communicate the genuine, normal, we all agree on the sorts of support that a developing child needs in order to learn how to socialize. When I say invalidated, <clears throat> we, we children, my brother and sister and I, were not allowed to have our own feelings. Um, our feelings, if our feelings offended our mother, we were not allowed to have them. And the control, so it, my experience subjectively as a child was that it, it, I felt like my mind was being violated, that I, di I didn't even have a fence that I could keep my mother out of my own mind because she would interrogate us, you know, and when, when she would monitor the arrangement of my face. My facial expressions, my tone of voice were constantly monitored. I happen to be one of those people. I don't know if it's because of my upbringing. I don't know if it is genetic temperament. I don't care. But I happen to be one of those people. I'm very emotionally expressive. I'm very emotional. I am too emotionally sensitive. Yes, I am too emotionally sensitive. But I wear my feelings on my face and in my body language no matter how hard I try, and I do try very hard, I am still more emotionally readable and expressive than the average person. That is who I am. It's not going to change. My mother found it intolerable. And I found her finding it intolerable, absolutely intolerable and a huge injustice. How dare this woman? How dare you? She would literally do things like when I was angry and frustrated to the point where I was shaking because I was either going to cry or scream, she'd force me to smile. Smile. Put a smile on your face. It's sadistic. It is sadistic. And it, I, see, I'm getting angry right now talking about it. It's still there. One of the long-term consequences, this is my responsibility to deal with. It is my responsibility, but it is not my fault that, that I react this way. I do have to control it but I didn't put this button in me. Even today at 48 years old, 
even with people that I know or I think I know like me or don't mean badly toward me, I am still overreactive and defensive. And if I perceive that somebody is su even suggesting that I'm not allowed to have an opinion, that I'm not allowed to feel this way, I get, I overreact and sometimes I fight with them and I, I lose my temper and I just say, you know, F off, get out of my face. Don't you dare tell me what to think ever, you know? <laughs> It's really difficult for me. And children who are not allowed, children who are neither allowed to have their own emotions without those emotions, them, I'm not talking about judging the behavior, I'm talking about morally judging the feelings, right? That is different. Judge the behavior, but judging the feelings is a deep wound to a child. Not only not allowed to have them, but also having... In, as a role model, a mother who was completely incapable of regulating her own emotions. That's borderline personality disorder. I never learned it. We never learned it, any of us. And those problems still haunt me still in middle age. Thank you for sharing that. And I think we're touching on a concept that's a core principle in family therapy, the principle of differentiation. Um, so I'm, I'm a little rusty on my Bowenian therapy theory. So for all the therapists who are um, more devout, please forgive my <laughs> shoddy recollection. But the principle of differentiation, as, as I recall, and as I've sort of integrated it and use it day to day, is that we, we need differentiation in, in two ways. We need differentiation between ourselves and other people. And then we need differentiation between thoughts, feelings, and actions. And you'll notice that people who have poor differentiation in one of those tend to have it in the other. So differentiation between self and other is that you, Josh, can be having your experience where right now you're you're even noticing that right now you're feeling upset just thinking about this stuff. And I don't have to collapse into you with that. I don't have right. to join you and be like, oh my God, Josh, I feel so bad. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Oh, I feel awful. Like you don't need that from me, right? No. And for a lot of people, that's that's kind of their their everyday best attempt that's at, your default. at empathy. Yeah, that's how we try to be good to people. Mm -hmm. But it's a mistake. And and yet often sometimes when we do that, we make it about us when it doesn't need to be. I've I've talked to a lot of people who come to me in therapy who have this pattern with someone in their life where when that person is trying to help them, they get all worked up about whatever's going wrong in their life with them. They get, yes, you know, yes. and, and it's, and then they make it about them. And then my, my patient ends up feeling like they now have to caretake their friend or loved one's feelings about their issue. Yes. Yes. And it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is my issue. Why am I yeah. trying to make you feel better about how upsetting it is for you so, so there's differentiation between self and other, right? Which is uh, emotional boundaries in one sense, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, and that differentiation is necessary for healthy empathy or healthy compassion. It's a relationship between equals 
as separate people who are connected. Um, and then the differentiation between thoughts, feelings, and actions. And this gets into what I was talking about earlier when I give the example of a really moody child where what, what I would hope to be able to do is to send the message, I understand something happened and we're going to work to figure out what happened from everyone's perspectives. And that when something happened, some feelings got triggered. And these are real sensations. These are visceral sensations happening in your body. Your heart is racing. Your stomach is churning. You feel your blood flowing to your limbs, whether, you know, preparing to, to punch someone or to run away. This, this is a real experience you're having of sensation in your body. And so that's the feeling. Um, but it's the behavior that we're trying to un unlink because um, it's okay to have anger, but a lot of people, when they talk about getting angry, they're actually referring to the behavior associated with that anger, right? So you can have that emotion without um, threatening violence, without attacking someone, yeah. raising your voice. Um, there, there are behaviors that you know, and so emotion regulation, when we talk about emotion regulation, we're talking about that um, healthy connection between thoughts, feelings, and actions where your conscious mind is able to recognize the feelings that you're having, including very real visceral sensations at times. And then you're able to identify what behaviors are going to help bring you back to a state of equilibrium. So that behavior is not raising your voice and calling someone names. It's maybe going to your room and working on your hobby, or it's going outside and throwing a ball. Um, there are all kinds of behaviors that you can use to self-regulate, to cool off when you need, when you're feeling hot, or to rev up if you're feeling down. Emotion regulation is sort of whatever state you're in. If it's a state of disequilibrium that's causing more stress in your life, how to gradually bring it back to a state of equilibrium to your happy point. It doesn't mean you have to be happy all the time, but it's about knowing when you're out of your window of tolerance. Also, emotion regulation is expanding your window of tolerance so that there's a wider range of emotions that you're able to experience while feeling like, I'm still here. And um, I can, if there's something, if there's a situation that calls for me, I can handle it, even though I am also feeling worked up. So people with poor emotion regulation have that narrow window of tolerance where there's a very specific set of conditions that have to be met for them to feel okay. Um, and then they're easily thrown out of it. And when they're thrown out of it, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are all undifferentiated. So the, the feeling is driving the thinking and the acting. Yes. Yep. So... What do you think about that? I'm sort of introducing this concept of differentiation in these two ways. Differentiation between thoughts, feelings, and actions. Differentiation between self and other. In your experience, does it seem like those are linked? Oh, yes. Um, it's the, 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 this is the first time I've heard it described in those terms, but I instantly understand it and agree that that is the dynamic that, that, that people are dealing with. One of the very difficult things about not just difficult, but necessary. And actually it's good that it happens. It's difficult, but it needs to be difficult. And it's good that it happens because good things come out of it. So I'm not, this is not something I'm complaining about. I'm acknowledging the difficulty, but saying you got to do it anyway. Uh, one of the difficult things in 
coming to understanding about your abusive childhood or the emotionally dysregulated way that you were raised. The first step, at least for me, was recognizing, you know, into my 40s, it took me into my 40s to understand that it wasn't just that my mother was, you know, how mom is crazy, mom's crazy that way, that's just mom. No, it wasn't just mom. It was called cluster B. There's a name for it. There's a taxonomy. There are millions of people that have this condition. There are millions more people in their orbit who are affected by that condition. It, it, it can be explained in psychological terms. It's not, it's not unique to that person. The more difficult part was seeing all of the ways that it had incapacitated me and made me unable to have normal emotional interactions with other people. So it exposed my own faults and character flaws. I wasn't expecting that when I broke free from, from mother. I wasn't expecting that as soon as I did that, that I'd be staring in a mirror. But I was staring in a mirror. And it, it became clear that I didn't know how to differentiate thoughts, feelings, and actions because everything in my childhood, all emotions, all of my mother's emotions were real and they, they controlled whatever my mother's emotions were in the moment controlled the reality of the life we were living in our living room, what we were going to have for dinner, whether we'd go to school the next day. Um, and actions always followed from these emotions. If mother was in this particular mood, you were going to get hit with a wooden spoon. If she were in this particular mood, you were going to get an hour-long lecture after bedtime where she interrogated you and told you that you were lying to her and you had to repeat and repeat until you told her the truth. You know, there were always emotions and then terrible actions. Learning how not to lose my own shit when I was having an emotional flare-up <laughs> is difficult. <laughs> well, it's so hard because you grew up feeling like you were under a microscope. So not only did you learn my feelings control my actions, it was my feelings control my mother's actions. I can't be having my own visceral experience, even if it's in response to something very real, like how I'm being treated, without my face and body language being read and scrutinized. And then that causing the most important adult in my world, the one who's responsible for protecting and feeding me, to go flying off the handle. And that has got to make emotions feel so intolerable and scary and, and risky to a kid. There's not that differentiation that allows for peace. That I can have my feelings, but she's okay. I can have my feelings, but I know I'm going to be okay because I have options yeah. for what to do next. It's I have any sensation, any emotion, it's showing on my face. Oh, no, here comes the paddle. Yikes. I'm not unique. You know, this, what, what I'm saying here is a story that millions and millions of people could tell. You know, there's that in, in the annals of, of dysfunctional childhoods, there's absolutely nothing unique or particularly extreme about my story. I really want to get that across to people. Because I hear a lot of feedback from people uh, who watch the show, and they very frequently will, you know, 
we we're building a community of people. We have a Discord server, for example, for uh, for members of the show, people who who support the show. And we have a lot of conversations in there, a lot of psychological conversations, political. A lot of people talk about their childhoods, as you would expect. My guess, just back of the envelope calculation, 70 to 80% of the people in there come from abusive childhoods, as you would expect. And I see the, um, I see the, they will say, they will want to share their stories. But the most frequent way they start out is, of course, I never went through anything as bad as what Josh went through all the time right and i understand it i'm not i'm not criticizing people for saying that but i am saying number one i'm not sure that you're right about that because all emotional abuse in this vein borderline narcissistic abuse is is, is extraordinarily traumatizing to a child just you might say well, it, my mother never hit me, or I didn't have a stepfather who tried to kill his mother. And Okay, fine, fine. Nobody ever hit you. I get it. You were never paddled. I don't, that doesn't mean that I think your childhood was easier than mine, necessarily. Well, I talked with uh, Christine Seifen on a recent episode about not comparing grief. She was a grief counselor who noticed the woke take over the counseling profession and notice that people went from this understanding that when you're dealing with grief or any kind of tremendous pain or loss, you don't say anyone's is better or worse yeah. than another. And there's kind of this sick dynamic. And I've noticed that too as a therapist where um, sometimes someone with a history of childhood emotional abuse or neglect comes to me and says, well, but... Um, but my, I'm sure my story isn't as bad as your other patients, or I don't want to waste your time. It's not yes. that bad. Or it's not, you know, there, there's always this comparison. And to my mind, that is actually a telltale sign of their emotional neglect. Yes. Right? This way of thinking <laughs> that's my needs aren't important. Other people I suffered know. worse than me. I don't want to take too much of your time. Yep. I, I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you you can't compare them and there's there's no point in what is it that we're worried about when we say that what are we trying to forestall against well we're i know we're we're talking to we're having a conversation inside our heads when we do that with our parent too um it may not be conscious to us but we're we're trying to justify ourselves in front of our parent um, or that that neglectful caretaker, that emotionally abusive caretaker. Um, it, I, I just, I, I think, well, it's part of you, and I know that you see this because any therapist would see this. It, the The idea that we have that child abuse or domestic abuse means fists and hitting. And that's all that it means. It only means hitting. It means physical battering. No, that's not all that it means. And of course, physical battering is terrible. On the other hand, I can tell you, I can remember, I have the images in my mind. I have the memories of some severe beatings by my stepfather. I have the memory of of course, my mother, being a woman, was not as as strong as my stepfather. So even though she scared me, she wasn't capable of hurting me 
after a certain age as badly as he was capable. Uh, but I was still scared of her. And I remember the wooden spoon treatment. I remember getting backhanded. I remember these things. Tell you what I don't remember. I don't remember the physical pain. I remember that I felt physical pain, but I don't have a memory of the physical pain. I have extraordinarily detailed memories of the emotional pain. That is what screwed me up more than anything. I would sooner take a, I'd sooner take a beating. And I'm not justifying beating, but I am saying, as someone who's had it both, I would take the beating before I would take the emotional abuse again. So if you are a person who was emotionally abused or neglected, you were fully 100% bona fide abuse victim. You are not a quasi-abuse victim because you didn't get slapped as well as gaslit. That's what I'd like to say to people. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Well, I'm thinking about what to address in our remaining time together. Um, I have a bit of an inkling, but but is there anything that you wanted to circle back to or maybe touch on for the first time? No, I'll follow your lead. Okay. I want to circle back to your expertise in death and dying. Okay. With everything that you have learned about death and dying, I'm sure there's some pearls of wisdom that have come from that. So one, <laughs> so I love that you and I are the kind of people who could handle questions. Like I, I want to ask you, like, how do you want to die? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't what care. do you What do you want to happen after you die? Yep. Um, I, I want to ask that, but and but not yet. Um, you know, it's the sort of question you can't just ask a lot of people. But um, yeah. But what? So so being that person who deals with the taboo when everyone else would rather not look at it until they're forced to. Um, being someone who's made the unconventional life choice of getting intimate with death and dying um, from a young age. What do you think we are missing? What, what could people learn from reflecting on death more? What do people wish that they knew when they arrive in that place? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, that I'm not sure that people need to reflect more on death. I think they need to get their hands dirty a little bit more with death. Let me explain that. There's a time and place for contemplation, and then there are kinds of things that you can only learn by doing. And we, I don't know that we need to reflect more. I don't think we have anything good to reflect on. Uh, I think we own... 
we all we do is reflect or ruminate or fantasize about death and the boogeyman and the scary, you know, uh, look how easy it is to scare the living daylights out of people. Remember in the beginning of the um, the so-called pandemic where everyone was terrified because the news was showing us pictures of refrigerated morgue trucks outside of crematories in New York City and California. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but of course I did because I was the one getting the calls from the press when when all this was new. Do you, they've got more trucks. There's so many bodies out there. The crematories can't stay on top of them. They got more. Did you know there's refrigerated trucks and people? And I'm just sitting here going, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's refrigerated trucks. The whole world's falling apart. Yep. The reality is. There are always refrigerated morgue trucks outside of some crematories in some states all the time that you've never heard about before, because this is the business of death. There are times when a certain town or a certain area has a spike in deaths and the crematory can't process them all quickly enough. And so they bring in a refrigerated morgue truck. That truck that you see down the street that is unmarked might just have dead bodies in it. And this has been going on your entire life and you never knew it. The only reason you're scared now is because you didn't know it and the news is telling you to be scared of something, but they're not telling you that it's just a little bit higher than, than it is in normal times. This is only possible because we don't touch, see, or smell death in real life. Go back to the mid-19th century. The very fact that that we in the West, we have something called a funeral home. The fact that we have something called a funeral home is an extraordinary luxury that just happened yesterday in terms of historical, historical epochs. There was no such thing as the modern funeral home before the last quarter of the 19th century. There wasn't. There were undertakers. But the undertaker's job was to help you. It was not to do everything for you. Everybody, with the exception of the rich and royalty, because they always had, they could always pay people to chew their food for them, right? <laughs> Everybody had death in the home. When your grandmother died in 1850, the women of your household would lay grandmother's body out, sometimes on the kitchen table, and wash and shroud her. The undertaker would be sent for, and his job was to come out to the house, measure grandma, build her coffin, or bring a standard-sized coffin from his furniture and cabinet shop. That's where funeral homes came out of, furniture and cabinet shops. And extra chairs. The undertaker undertook to help you. He was not a funeral director, you see? So the body was physically encountered in the home physically washed by people in the home, sometimes by women uh, who made their living as layers out of the dead. You know, the, the, way, the way some women would, they were midwives or they, they laid out the dead. You know, this was a, a common economic practice. And that body went into the coffin and went into your front parlor and it stayed in your home for a couple of days. And everybody came over. The funeral took place there before you went to church. You saw grandmother die at home you saw her decline, you saw her dead body in the home, and you saw it for a couple of days after it was dead. This was normal. 
this wasn't just a thing a few people did. This is what everybody did, right? Now, all sorts of reasons why that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, move from rural areas to urban areas where it's not actually practical to get a coffin up stairs in a walk-up apartment. All sorts of things changed. But the consequence of this is that something that used to be as much a part of everyday domestic economy as milking the cows, washing the baby's diapers, um, tending the beans in the garden, death was just as much a part of the domestic economy as all those things were. We don't see it anymore. The dead are whisked out of our, our, of our home. And that lack of familiarity has caused people to absolutely lose their minds about death. They are so afraid of it. The, think about the fact that <clears throat> I would get people calling on the phone and saying, you know, um, you know, well, you know, my grandmother, you know, died at two in the morning. Now, grandma, grandma died in the home because the family had hospice care in the home. They had a hospital bed in the home. They wanted grandma to be at home so she could die. So that means that this family's experiencing this very ill lady every day. Maybe they're changing her catheter along with the nurse. Maybe they're washing and bathing her. Maybe they're feeding her. They're doing all of these intimate care things with grandma. But the minute grandma stopped breathing at two in the morning, she wasn't grandma anymore. She was a capital C corpse, right? Call the funeral home. Get the body out of here. Get it out of here. Get it. People freak out, right? Suddenly, it's not grandma anymore. It's the walking dead, right? This isn't necessary. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's realistic. And I think it's artificial. And I'm not blaming anyone for having this reaction. I understand why they have it. But if you can think outside of it, I think people need to, people don't know, for example, in most states in the United States, it's perfectly legal for you to act as your own family's undertaker. If your wife dies, you can wash her, lay her out, Go to the doctor, get his signature on the death certificate, file it with the town clerk, get the burial permit, drive the body to the crematory, drive it to the cemetery. You are not required to hire a commercial funeral home any more than you're required to hire a commercial hair salon to cut your hair. If you want to cut your kid's hair at home, you can cut your kid's hair at home. If you don't want to hire a dentist to pull your own teeth out, it may be inadvisable, but you can pull your own tooth out. It's not illegal to do things for yourself, right? People don't have no idea about this. And when you tell them, they're like, oh my God, who would do that? Who would do that? Your own family was doing that four generations ago. Your family was doing that. Were they weird and creepy too? I'm not saying people have to do this, but I am saying I have seen with my own eyes by helping people do family-directed undertaker-free funerals, um, I have seen with my own eyes the difference that it makes in terms of the family's sense of meaningfulness and purpose at a very difficult time. I have never been more emotionally moved by a funeral than I have been moved by an old-fashioned family funeral, the way our 19th century ancestors used to do it. Seeing multiple generations of a family great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and children, down to toddlers, all in the house, 
dad's body is in the coffin in the window. If you want to spend time with the body, you can, but no one's going to force you over there to do that if you don't want to. I see. I have seen children and grandchildren decorate grandpa's coffin that they built at home with finger paints and putting their palm prints on and saying, I love you, grandpa. I, it is incredibly moving. That it is sad, but it is also, I'm sorry, it, it really is moving. It's human and it's real. And it's a kind of love that we don't, we don't do much anymore. And it, the, for the families who have done this, it is so meaningful to them in a way that having all of the responsibility taken away from them um, and done by somebody else did not bring them the meaning they thought it did and didn't bring them the peace of mind. Now, what's an easy, what is an easier way to do this, to jump into this, if you don't want to go all the way with that pets, especially if you have children, I'm going to, I'm going to be didactic and tell people how to live their lives because I know best. So take it or leave it. <laughs> people are constantly asking should should I let the child go to the funeral? Should kids go to the funeral? Yes. Yes. Yes, they should. Why? Because they're humans. Because that's their grandmother. Because you can't shelter them from the reality that people die. And the fear and the neurosis about death is inculcated by adults who keep secrets and say, oh, you know, oh, right? If your child is really scared, doesn't want to go actually see the corpse, I'm not saying you have to force the child to do that. But I can tell you, and I've seen it again with my own eyes, children take their fear cues from adults, and adults who agonize over whether the children should go there are not actually talking about their children at all. They mean to, and they think they're thinking about their kids, but they are not thinking about their kids. They're soothing themselves. They're dealing with their own fear. That fear, your kids are picking up on it. You are creating a death complex in your children right now while you do that, okay? If you've got pets, for goodness sake, have pet funerals. I'm a cat guy. I love cats. I love dogs too. I just don't have a dog because they require more care than I'm willing to give. And I think that you are morally responsible to care for an animal to the degree that it needs it. So if I'm not prepared to give the dog all the attention, it would not be a moral choice for me to have a dog. So I have cats. I've had many cats die. I am lucky where I live that we have a, uh, a vet who travels for house calls for euthanasia. So I don't have to take Kitty in to be put to sleep in a sterile white room with stainless steel tables. They will come. I can hold the cat. It's a much, much nicer way to die, right? Um, what I do when the cats die, because animals know what death is too. Animals have relationships with each other. You know, when I've got three cats in the house, they know when one of them isn't there anymore. What I do is once the cat has died, I get out an old sheet that I'm going to use as a shroud. I put it down on the couch. The cat, the cat's body goes there, range them, you know, pause here. I leave it there for a couple of hours. I let the other animals of the house come over and smell, and they will do so. This is how they understand the world. I want them to know what happened to their compatriot in whatever way cats understand this. I don't know for sure, but I do know that they are having an experience. And as the body stiffens, and when I feel it's right, 
and the time is right, then I go and do the burial. And what I always do with the cats, I always dig the grave the day beforehand so that I can't give myself an excuse not to do it. And also, or I do it the morning of that I know the death is going to happen. Having that job to do is physical, which helps, but it also is meaningful. It's one of the last things I can do. This is my responsibility. This is my cat. I loved her. It is my responsibility to bury her. And when the cats are done and when, the, you know, my housemate, when, when we feel it's time to go, we shroud Kitty, wrap her up, and we bring her out and we bury her. And we say whatever words we want or not. If you have kids in the house, bring the kids in on this. If their friend has died, their furry friend, they're sad. You can get kids used to this by making this a normal, sad, but loving normal part of family life. I think it's a wonderful way to introduce them to a better way to do death. And I'll stop lecturing now. Wow, that's beautiful, Josh. Thank you for sharing that. So I believe my last question for you on this subject is, how do you want to die? And how do you want to be treated after you die? I'll tell you how I'd like to die. Um, and I have a different answer for treated after death. Um, as soon as I go on hospice, I'm going right back to smoking cigarettes. I'm going to become a clonopin addict. I'm going to do <laughs> heroin. I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> I intend to develop a strong benzodiazepine addiction and spend uh, the rest of my two weeks in absolute joyful haze. Okay, uh, just, just I, I got a disclaimer. None of this is medical advice. None of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, and you shouldn't listen to anything I have to say about this. Um, <laughs> after death, after death, I had a, a real change of heart about this, and I'd, li I'd like to ask people to think about this for themselves, too. People would ask constantly, how do I make sure that my family does what I want? I want, to, I want to set everything up ahead of time. I want these prayers said. I want these prayers said. And I used to think it was my job to help people set that up. Then I started dealing with, I started talking to the children. You know, I talked to other family members, those who experienced the death, not just those planning their own death. And I thought, I, other people may disagree with me, but I think the idea of setting down my body will be treated this way, you will do this, is incredibly self-centered, dare I say narcissistic, okay? Because guess what? Who cares what you want done to your body or what prayers you want said or what things you don't? Because we'd have just as many people who'd say, I'm not having a funeral. I've told my children there will be no crying. We're going to have a party and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know what? Shut up. First of all, just stop it. You can't control what happens after your death. Number two, did you think to ask your family what might be emotionally meaningful to them? Did you even think about the fact that the people you say you love are going to be the ones crying? Guess what? You're going to be dead. You're not going to know if I kick you in the back of the tuchus, right? You are not going to experience your funeral. Your family is going to experience your funeral. They matter. So I had to confront this when I had an early heart attack at age 36. And I didn't think I'd have to make funeral plans as quickly as all that. But I was like, well, uh, you know, apparently I do. What I decided to do was 
in my advanced directives to say to people, I will give, you know what my values are, family and friends. You know what my values are. You know my religious beliefs. You know what I think about certain players in the funeral industry. For example, you know that I hope you won't patronize a certain funeral business because they're known to rip people off. And I don't want you to be ripped off when you take care of me. You also know that I don't really like embalming. I find it kind of gross. It's not my first preference. But that's it. I give all of you permission to do whatever you feel you need to do in that moment to get you through it. If that means that you embalm me, even though that's not my favorite, I give you permission to do that. If you decide that you want to donate my body to science, I give you permission to do that. You know that I am not a religious person, but if you need a religious ceremony over my coffin, I give you permission to do that. What matters to me is this being meaningful and accomplishable for you. This is about you. It's not about me. I will be gone. So I don't care what people do. The only thing I care about is that they, that they don't rack themselves with guilt, that they remember that they're not doing anything to me or for me because I'm not there anymore, and that they get through it the best way they know how. That's all I care about. Well, Josh, that's deep, and it makes a lot of sense. Our avoidance of death is our avoidance of recognition that we are not gods, we are not immortal, we are not in control of everything. And and death is it's the ultimate relinquishing of all control. control. And, and yeah. that's I mean, what you're doing really respects what death is. And and it surrenders accordingly. And 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 that I would say that's how you want to die. You want to die properly, which is you want to accept the loss of control and hopefully find yourself having lived such a life that at the end of it, you're surrounded by people who love you and know you enough that they would naturally be moved to do something that honors you and your values. And also that takes care of what they need. And there's a trust in that, that if you cultivate your relationships well, that what honors you and what works for those who love you will naturally um, be a harmonious blend. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. I wish that for everybody. I think that's really wise. Um, are you still doing any kind of like if someone were listening to this right now and their grandfather was in hospice, um, could they reach out to you? Yes. Yes. I still have the same expertise, even though I'm not doing it, um, you know, in a professional capacity. Um, there is a couple of ways to, um, in fact, I'll probably be addressing some of this stuff. I also, I offer one hour coaching and consulting sessions. Um, they, most people come to me because they're, they're dealing with a, um, possibly a cluster B narcissistic abuse situation, either at work or at home, but I'll talk to people about anything. I mean, I've had clients come to me and, and say, I want to problem solve about what grad school program I should get into. You know, and I'm not setting myself up as an expert on any one particular thing, but I I do have some skill in helping people identify what their what their fears are, what their hopes are, 
what the possible options are and what the consequences of those might be so that they can take the next step and make that decision. So I'll talk with people about anything. You don't have to, you know, book a session about, you know, my abusive grandfather, but I think I'm also going to, I'm going to put together probably a zoom class soon that I'll offer, um, uh, to people, basic funeral planning. Um, you know, going through mortuary mythology, separating truth from fact, taking a look at what prevailing prices are, um, looking at death from a couple different angles, you know, the home family funeral thing versus the commercial funeral home thing. And I'll have some stories to tell, some funny ones and some a little bit gross ones for people who like the the morbid and the perverse. Uh, so I'll be offering one of those soon. People can check for that on um, my site, joshuaslocum.net. I think that's a great service and and much needed and not really something that I've heard about much. Although to be fair, it's not something I've thought about much, but I'm I'm grateful too. And um and I, I'm grateful that we are we are two people under the age of 50 having a conversation about death because I think I know a lot I'm, of just, don't. <laughs> I'm just squeaking in under the age of 50 though. So uh, <laughs> um I'm very glad, you know, that this is why I've told you this before, Stephanie, but you know, it's, it's one thing and it's a wonderful thing to know that you are out there in practice because I don't have a lot, I don't have high regard for the mental health field as a whole today. Although I do have a therapist and a wonderful therapeutic relationship, I don't have high regard for the collective nature of how it's being done in this country right now. Um, so when, when there are people like you who, in my opinion, understand what is actually therapeutic rather than band-aiding or helping enable bad coping behaviors. I'm it's already a good thing, but the fact that you don't just restrict that to the one-on-one with clients, but that you have a show where you talk about this stuff, you're doing public service as well. So thank you. Thanks for that, Josh. And um, you know, on that note, I also do consulting and and I, I have this conversation with other people I care about who are considering doing consulting. It's like our, our biggest blind spot sometimes is ourselves. It's it's hard to see ourselves the way other people see us. And um and I think when when some people are tr- are thinking about, and this might not apply to everyone, but there are definitely people in my life who it applies to, when you're thinking about how to put forth your consulting services, if you are somebody who has a podcast, a YouTube channel, or even a popular, you know, social media content platform where you're creating good content, people who are watching or listening to you feel like they know you and they, they want to talk to you. They're not just looking for some expert on a subject. I mean, maybe they are, you know, when they're looking for a therapist, that's usually how it is, right? They're like, I need to talk to a therapist, but I think in general that, you know, people like you and me and a lot of our sort of um, compatriots, to use a word that yeah, used earlier, yeah. in, in the sphere of the micro-celebrity um, internet influencer <laughs> culture, <I> know. <laughs> um, you know, people want to talk to Josh or they want to talk to Stephanie or they, yep. because they they just feel like we are the right sounding board because they feel like they know our personality and our values. And I think sometimes that that is more important than the expertise. And so with my consulting services, I'm I'm considering taking a hiatus from doing therapy. I've definitely 
um, trimmed my practice down because of all the other things I'm involved in, as well as my yeah. ongoing health challenges and the need to prioritize taking care of myself. Yes. Um, but it's like that too. And, and I, I leave my doors open for consultation. I find it's, it's more, it's a more comfortable way for me to work because I, th between doing therapy and podcasting and everything I've been involved in, at the end of the day, I just want to have honest conversations yeah. to deliver practical value to people. Yeah. And um, within the therapy role, there are certain boundaries and confines that serve to, on the one hand, protect the ther protect the integrity of the service being provided and protect the consumer, which is wonderful. But some of those boundaries start to feel kind of um, disingenuous sometimes um, and a little stifling to try to adhere to. And sometimes I just find myself like, I just want to help this person however I can. And if there's something I know that I can share with them, even if I have to sort of step outside of the therapy role to share that information, that's what I want to do. And so that's where I offer the consulting services. Yeah. And people reach out to me from all over the country. And it's like, I am not licensed to diagnose or treat mental health conditions outside of Oregon. But if you want to meet with me once or twice, um, just to pick my brain about whatever, yeah. as somebody who is a therapist and can, yes, I can wear that hat, but I can also speak frankly about the state of the field because sometimes yes. people come to me wanting to talk about the state of the field. They, they're they thinking about going to grad school and they're not sure yeah. about it, or they're, they want to find a therapist for their teenager, but they don't trust any therapists that work with teens in their state, which is very understandable. Constant, constant um, thing that I hear. Yes. Constant. Yeah. Um, well, Josh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for this Thank enlightening you, raw conversation. I love that um, you have you have your subjects that you're known for. I have my subjects that I'm known for, but I love that we kind of stepped outside of yeah. all of that and talked about something that's more on the fringe of what we usually cover. You clearly have a lot of value to offer people when it comes to death. And I do think that there's a big connection between the other sort of shadow work you do and your your honesty, your acceptance of limitation, your acceptance of the hard things in life and your intimate relationship with death. So I thank you for bringing that side of your wisdom to us today. Well, thank you. I always enjoy talking to you and um, do it again sometime. Sounds good. I, so I wish you the best in, your, um, in taking care of your health as well. Oh, thank you. So you said your website is joshuaslocum.net. Your yep. podcast is Disaffected, found Disaffect wherever podcasts are found. Although... Make sure you're listening on audio platforms if you want to hear my conversation with Josh. Yes. It's not on his YouTube, although you should yeah, also subscribe. Our audio on his is just on the podcast platforms, but the YouTube uh, full production TV style show also goes out on that. So if you catch us on your podcast app, you'll get everything. Okay. And on Twitter, your podcast is at Disaffected Pod, but you're not on Twitter as Josh Slocum anymore. Not are you? anymore. No. Okay. okay. Uh, Any other social oh, media no. or. Um, uh, it's a, I think Substack is where it's at right now. Um, we that's kind of our home base. That's where a lot of people are finding us, and that's also where I do the writing uh, um, because I write as well as um, uh, uh, doing the show. Um, and um, most of the stuff, most of the essays on there are free. But you know, there are a few feet. You know, uh, not, some feature pieces that we we hold back for uh, for paying subscribers. But if you want to see what's going on there, all our show announcements and. And uh, and the writing goes up on Substack as well. Okay, what's your Substack? 
Um, I guess the best way is um, disaffectedpod.substack.com. I think if you just look for disaffected and substack, you'll get it on a search. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Josh. Talk to you you later. Thank you, Stephanie. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.